brief, informative, engaging, and lively discussion um, really about cutting edge science and advancements in type 1 diabetes research. We're going to have um, as our guest today, Dr. Uh, Anev Shalev. She's coming to us from UAB or University of uh, Alabama, Birmingham, and she received her MD in training at the University of Basel in Switzerland. After her postgraduate course in experimental biology and medicine at the University of Zurich, she came to the US and did a uh, research fellowship at HM at Harvard Medical School and her fellowship training in endocrinology, diabetes and metabolism at NIH in Bethesda. In 20, uh, 2002, she became assistant professor at University of Wisconsin-Madison and was later promoted to associate professor and director of endocrinology, diabetes and metabolism research there. And then she moved to the University of Alabama at Birmingham as a professor of medicine in 2010 and went on to become the director of UAB Comprehensive Diabetes Center and the Nancy R. and Eugene C. Gwaltney a Family Endowed Chair in Juvenile Diabetes Research. Dr. Shalev's research uh, and her laboratory has pioneered the role of thyroredoxin interacting protein, otherwise known as TXNIP, in pancreatic islic biology and continues to work on the translation of molecular findings into novel therapeutic approaches for diabetes. Um, and her newest paper just came out in March uh, 3rd, 2022, and is titled Exploratory Study Reveals uh, Far-Reaching Systemic and Cellular Effects of Verapamil Treatment in Studies with Type 1 Diabetes, and that was in Nature Communication. So congratulations on that. Um, welcome, Dr. Shalev, and thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to talk to us about your work. I'm really interested to hear more about it. Thank you. So um, what do you want to, to hear first? Just about the study, roughly, or? Sure. I mean, I think you have a few slides, so right? Coming from? Yeah. So, so again, kind of to um, give you the background, we obviously were interested in finding targets that uh, play an important role in beta cell death and identified thyroidoxin interacting protein, or TICSNP, many, many years ago. We then were able to show in um, loss of function studies with uh, knockout uh, models that it really protects uh, against diabetes in, in, in mouse models. And then we're trying to find pharmacological tools with which we could modulate TICSNP expression. And we're able to identify retinol, which is otherwise known as a blood pressure medication. It's been out in the market for over 30 years as a potent way of reducing uh, TICSNP in islets of rodents, but also in human islets. Um, and so with that, we were then able to show in in vivo studies in mice that it was also protective and reversing diabetes. And so that allowed us to then go into the first human trial that we published back in uh, 2018 in Nature Medicine to show that new onset um, type 1 diabetes in, in subjects actually also responded to, to retinol and you were able to slow the progression of the disease. There was more uh, remaining functional beta cell uh, uh, mass and uh, people that were on retinol required less insulin as compared to those that were receiving placebo. And of note, this was not at any expense of having um, low blood pressure. And that was obviously a concern being a blood pressure medication. So even young people, healthy people tolerated retinol very well. Um, and so, but with that, uh, we, we had shown that it was, it was effective, but there were still a number of mechanistic questions that we didn't know. We didn't know exactly how it was working, how exactly was it affecting the, uh, the human islets, 
and um, how long would the effect even last? We, the initial study in, that we published in 2018, uh, patients were treated for one year, so we didn't know whether that beneficial effect would last any longer. And then uh, how could we monitor it? Uh, as you know, the only way that the proof way in type 1 diabetes to monitor is by mixed meal stimulated um, C-peptide around the curve, which is a bothersome test. And so to see whether we could find any better biomarkers. And that's where the current work comes in. So we followed out a, a subset of the subjects for two years and actually were able to um, show that people that remained on Varethmil did a lot better. So they had continued to maintain their beta cell function and they required less insulin. Even that difference became even bigger after two years. However, those that discontinued uh, the varavimil after one year, their levels uh, and their beta cell function became very similar to those that had never been on, on varavimil and the placebo group. So it really required ongoing treatment, but it also serves as a proof that it actually was effective. And so that's kind of from a, from a clinical standpoint, we were able to show that if the effect, the beneficial effect lasts, at least in that small cohort for at least two years. In addition, we did some mechanistic studies and we looked at the effects of retinol in, in human islets by uh, trans transcriptomics and found a number um, of pathways that were regulated, again, um, pointing to, towards TICSNP that we had expected, but consistent with that also antioxidative, anti-apoptotic, but also immune modulatory gene expression profiles that changed had a beneficial change in, in uh, response to varafinil. And then the most um, surprising uh, finding was that we found that varafinil also had an effect on uh, pro-inflammatory factors. And we did that by proteomics analysis of the serum of patients that had received varafinil and those that, that didn't. Um, and that kind of showed for the first time that Rapamil may have an effect actually on the autoimmunity of type 1 diabetes in addition to its beta cell preserving effects. And it may explain why we see such a beneficial effect in the absence of a bona fide uh, kind of immune modulatory regimen at the same time. So, so it's kind of like a two hit. You're getting two. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, two two benefits was, for one, for one um, drug. Exactly. So that, that was, that was, very, very surprising and very, very interesting to us. And then finally, as part of that, as I mentioned, the proteomics analysis, we discovered that chromogranin A, which has been used kind of as a, as a marker for, for endocrine cells, um, was very strongly correlated with the effect and actually, and it could be used beyond the acute phase. I mean, there's a number of tests that you can do for an acute onset um, uh, type 1 diabetes that show kind of the decline of the, the beta cell function, et cetera. But to show kind of a therapeutic marker is something that we were lacking in the field and would be really helpful. And it looks like that chromogranin A may provide that. And it's a very simple test that can be done in any clinical lab because it correlated very well with uh, the beta cell function and with, um, with the effect of, of retinol. So, so with that, we believe that we have a, a useful tool uh, when, when we treat patients uh, with uh, preservative therapies for type 1 diabetes. This is just, I mean, this is huge. I think, 
I wonder if you can comment on, you know, where, um, you know, where verapamil and sort of the, I guess the um, appreciation of chromogranin A, you know, where, where in the prodrome window could this be best applied? I mean, stage zero, stage one, I mean, can you extrapolate a little bit? Well, it, the, the earlier, probably the better. Um, here we obviously, those uh, people had already been diagnosed. They were within uh, three months of their diagnosis. Um, so I think that's definitely until then it's useful. It's useful. Um, we believe that uh, it may also work that it's not so much the timing from when the diagnosis, but more how much beta cell function is still remaining. Yeah. Um, so I think uh, obviously the earlier, the better. I think it would also be very attractive as a, as a preventative uh, um, intervention, especially since it's so well tolerated. But even in later stages, even in people that have had diabetes for several years, if there's still any remaining beta cell function, it may have an effect. And so I think that is still something that would have to be tested. But Can you logically, talk a based on the science, it should. Yeah, it should, it does sound it does sound like it's um, you know it can have benefits across the spectrum. Can you comment a little bit on you know how? Um, it, it will, would this be a drug that's, um, able to be prescribed for pediatrics? Um, or, you know, is that, a, is there a dosage issue? Is it indicated for pediatric use? Right. So that's a very good question. So unfortunately in the U S, uh, oral varechnol is not approved for pediatric use officially. Um, but it is being used uh, under you know certain circumstances for um, cardiological uh, indications, so it can be used in other countries. It is approved for for uh, children as well. So in terms of that, it it would have to be used if anyone wanted off label, obviously, and it would have to be tested for 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 kids. There is no particular contraindication to be used in in children. It's just the dosage would have to be adjusted accordingly. And then you did touch on a little bit before the, you know, before we started that, um, you know, your study was a smaller study. It, it was, it was successful and gave some great results, but that it's um, it being expanded in Europe. I didn't know if you wanted to kind of talk a little bit about that. Sure. So actually Nodia uh, is, which is kind of a kind of part of Tronet, JDRF in, in, in Europe uh, is doing a, a multi-center, multi-country uh, study uh, trying to um, test osiverethanol in, in uh, new onset type 1 diabetes. And so we're obviously interested to see what, what the results are going to be. What is the timeline for when the results will start being um, you know, made public from those studies? Do you that, have that I don't know. Again, I think there has been delays, unfortunately, due to COVID. Yeah. Um, I wondered if, you know, in terms of uh, the other end of the spectrum, people have had type one for a long time period. Um, you know, we've seen cases of medalists um, who have still some beta functionality. Um, it, I, I guess maybe I'm asking or thinking about whether or not those people might still benefit. And I, I know you said it's possible, you know, depending on whether or not they have the beta cell function left. Um, but, you know, ha, ha, I mean, it seems like those people are older anyway. So maybe some of those, a subset have already been on something like verapamil. I don't know. I mean, is there any way to kind of mine those data? 
Yeah, that's a great idea. Um, it hasn't been done for in the context of type 1 diabetes, but what's really interesting is that when we started working with Rathmill again, we initially were very surprised. And, and one question that we asked ourselves is how come has that not been noticed? Because I mean, Rathmill is a pretty common drug. There's a lot of diabetes out in the world. How come that connection or the association has not been noticed? Mm. And actually when we started looking through the literature, there were some studies, uh, actually only one in Vestral that had looked at different blood pressure medication and the risk of of um, type two diabetes. And they had actually seen that uh, people taking Rathmill had a lower risk, particularly Hispanic people had a lower risk of developing type two diabetes. So that was in the past. And after we published our study, there were um, other studies coming out looking at um, the, the biggest one is a very large trial um, that, that was done with, with uh, a Chinese record um, of, of their um, aging population, and particularly subjects over 65 who were on retinol had a significantly lower risk of developing diabetes. So again, I think in the context of, of type 2 diabetes, it has been shown, I mean, those were 40,000 people a year. So very large studies that show the beneficial effect of retinol. So I would think that it could also uh, be true in, in again, in, in type 1, longstanding type 1, as long as there's still some beta cell function left. Interesting. In context of, you know, this is sort of shifting gears for a little bit, but in context of the whole other realm of eyelid implantation. Do you think there could potentially be a role for verapamol in that space? Yes, absolutely. I mean, again, I think it's, it, it is something that protects uh, the beta cell against cell death. And uh, obviously we know that in eyelid transplant, uh, one of the issues is that a lot of the cells are being lost in the very acute phase, but then also long-term. So that could um, help with, with that aspect of the, of the transplantation. Obviously, the, the large hurdle is still uh, the immunosuppression, and that would have to be overcome in some way or other. Yeah. Um, you know, it is kind of interesting, you know, uh, that you, your group did look as, uh, at whether or not Brachmil affected T cells, right? And you find the several pro-inflammatory markers of T follicular helper cells like CXCR5 and interleukin-21, those were like really elevated significantly in the PBMCs in these people with type 1. And so you wonder if like as the immune system came online, this is totally speculative, but at, in an eyelid implantation event, um, it, if verapamil might be able to help kind of dampen that as well on that side. So, I mean, it's really curious to think about, and of course experiments have to be conducted to investigate it, but it does seem like there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of room for inquiry. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, the, the immune aspect or the immune modulatory aspect of retinol is completely novel and we, we did not expect it and it has not been described prior to that. Yeah, no, it's, it's fascinating. I, I wanted to see if anyone from the audience would like to ask a question. Yeah, I, I would yeah. like to ask, what is uh, the mechanism for the beta cell uh, action? For the beta cell? Yeah, the, 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 the rapamil. On the beta cell? Well, so again, it, it targets, so rapamil lowers the expression of, of thyroidoxin interacting protein or TixNIP. 
and TixNIP is quote unquote toxic to, to the beta cell. So what TixNIP does is it's a, it's a part of the redox system. It binds to thyrodoxin and when it binds to thyrodoxin, thyrodoxin can no longer reduce oxidized proteins. So it increases the oxidative stress within the cell. And as you know, beta cells are particularly susceptible to oxidative stress, no matter from what type of stress are on the, on, on the, in the environment. And so uh, by reducing TixNIP expression in the beta cell, uh, those cells are then protected against exogenous stressors, um, whether they're due to the autoimmunity of, of type 1 diabetes or anything else. And so, so that's what we showed initially genetically, but then retinol is able to mimic that. Yeah, TixNIP's a mediator of ER stress in the beta cell as well, correct? Correct. So I wonder if anyone's done the experiment where they just had, you know, beta cell, human beta cells in the dish and kind of, you know, stress them out with some CVB or roseola virus, and then tried to um, see if there was some kind of uh, dose response of TixNib that would calm that down. Has anybody looked at that? I'm not aware of that. Not not with virus like stress tests. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> see. yeah. But but I mean, with other things, we've we've obviously looked with with ER stress uh, induction, like uh, Pepsi Gargan, and with with. Uh, type one that we just associated cytokines. So, mm. so there, there's definitely the, the correlation there. Interesting. Um, any other questions from the audience? I, um, uh, I have one question. Um, very interesting uh, talk. I'm Ping Wang from Michigan State University. So um, my, uh, my question is, um, um, I mean, besides this, um, this, uh, 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 I mean, um, drug, uh, I mean, have you tested other like um, calcium and antagonist, uh, I mean, in patient or animal model, like of type, of type 1 diabetes? Yeah, that's a very good question because you're right. The effect of retinol on, on TixNIP is not specific to retinol. It's actually based on the lowering of calcium in the cell. And we showed that in the very early studies in vitro that we can get very similar effects with the TSM, which is another one, and even with a calcium chelator such as EGTA. Um, we picked retinol just because it had the strongest effect, particularly in human islets. And so that's why we went ahead with it. So we have not done any in vivo studies uh, other than uh, with retinol. Having said that, I mean, what we also have, and that's, that's a separate story, we don't have time obviously to go into that at this point, but we also have worked on uh, trying to identify a more specific uh, tool to lower TixNIP and develop the small molecule that is inhibiting TixNIP expression. And, and that we published uh, um, in, in cell metabolism. And we're now uh, working on uh, actually commercially developing that small molecule that has additional anti-diabetic effects, but also targets TixNet. Thank you. Um, I really like uh, the discussions between you and uh, um, Dr. Uh, I mean, uh, I mean, Monica, uh, I mean, so the uh, discussion um, of the type two diabetes and also the eyelid transplantations. So, so my uh, second question is like, is that possible? Um, this um, medicine also uh, contribute to increase the blood supply to the eyelid. So, um, I mean, because it's a, I mean, um, hypertension um, medicine. So, 
Um, that's probably also could be benefit for the eyelid transplantation for the acute, um, I mean, loss of the um, hypoxia induced uh, eyelid grafts. Yeah, it's a very good question. I, I have no idea. We would obviously have to, to look at that. I mean, again, it's not known that it's um, promoting um, kind of neovascularization, but what, what would be very consistent, I think, with its function is vasodilation. So if there are already vessels there, that it would uh, allow more blood flow through those uh, microvessels. So that, that would be conceivable, but uh, I don't think that has been looked at, but it's a very good point. Thank you. That would then make it three for one. <laughs> three that's better. right. <laughs> so that would be, in, that's a really interesting point. Um, Vishal, do you wanna um, ask a question? Sure. Um, thank you so much. And I can just imagine that, you know, I'm sitting with Annette and Karsten, who I hold them in such a high regard and never thought I would be talking to them. So thank you so much for the opportunity here. Um, uh, my question was about um, the secretion of chromogranin A and whether, you know, we, we know that insulin is, is released in a regulated manner. Uh, what do we know about chromogranin A secretion? Is it regulated? And how does that correlate with um, um, the beta cell mass and the function? So that was the first question. And the second question was about, you know, when we apply verapamil in the early onset type one diabetes, I was reading some of the reviews article and some of the work um, earlier. Um, and, and, you know, there was this one article that I came across that shows that there's hardly 20% of the beta cell mass left in early onset type one diabetics. So, uh, is it possible based on, you know, based on this study, is it possible to conclude some or correlate what is the residual beta cell function or mass is present in those early onset type 1 diabetics, which is sort of really hard and, and type 1 diabetic uh, communities is struggling to answer that question. So thank you so much again. Sure. No, those are, those are two excellent questions. So in regard to the first one, um, so we were able to show that, that uh, chromogranin A was very well correlated with, um, with the decline of uh, beta, functional beta cell mass. So the less beta cell mass, the more chromogranin A uh, in, in, the, in the serum. And, and we believe it's, it's, it's just being released from, from the cells and that's why we see it. And that's why we have that increase in, in type one diabetes. And that's been shown. Obviously it's not specific, it has other, it's not only in the beta cells, other endocrine uh, cells as well. And, but in the context of type one diabetes, that's why we think it's, it's beneficial for as a marker and that, and we see really the, I mean, the nice thing in, in, in our study, what we were able to show was that when, when people were taking the mill, they had, uh, they maintained beta cell function and, and beta cell mass, chromogranin A went down. And, and when, when they didn't in the placebo group, it went up and those that stopped the mill, you get that, that big uh, increase in chromogranin A as soon as they stopped taking the mill. So, so you actually see that that correlate very, very well. Um, in terms of your other question was the, the, the fact that it's been out there that at the time of diabetes is only 20% left. I think that's debatable and it's debatable for, for many reasons. Uh, we see a huge uh, variability when we look, and again, this is currently the gold standard, when we looked at mixed meal stimulated CPEP that area under the curve as a, as a measure of remaining beta cell function, 
when, when we looked in, in our patient population at three months, and this was very strictly at three months after diagnosis, but the given time point, um, the variability is huge. Uh, someone may have still quite a bit and others may have very little. Um, so you can't really go by that. In addition, there's this whole new concept, and I think it's, it's, it holds very true, that not seeing, and that's, I think, also why we need better markers or additional markers, because what does the mixed meal stimulated C-peptide the curve tell you? It's also only how, many, how much C-peptide those beta cells can secrete in that given moment. Uh, and so if they're just stunned by the onset of the disease, they may not be able to secrete C-peptide, but they're still alive. They're there, they're just mm -hmm. not producing. So the thought of cells that are just not functioning, but still alive, or maybe even cells that have started to end differentiate, but with the right environment can be pushed back into full functioning uh, beta cells that, that do their, their duty. Um, is, is, I think is a, is a big one. And, and yeah. uh, so I think that is definitely the, the way we look at it. Um, and the way we think that these therapies are working and the, the reason why these therapies are working. That's so interesting that you brought that up because that brings up, you know, Peter Thompson and Anil uh, Bouchon's work where they're talking about how some of these cells that are so stressed undergo senescence, right? Just sort of coming exactly. from the cancer world and that now they're offline. And then you're sort of saying like, well, if we can get the stress off of them, then maybe they can come back online. And it is kind of curious, right? Because it kind of plays well with this whole like um, clinical presentation when a child or someone comes in in DKA, they're given insulin, they're stabilized, and then they're a, they return to honeymoon. So the, the cells are not working, then they're in their honeymoon, they are working as a sort of a, that's sort of like a, a very uh, mean, you know, situation, because then, of course, they descend back into diabetes. But, yeah. but that, that, that window of like, being offline, and then being online, when they are released from their stress does kind of play well with you know, the, uh, the story of, um, Tixnib and, um, and, um, Verapamil that you're talking about. So that's really, really interesting. I'd love to see some more work there. I wondered if you might just sort of, before we come to the end of our time, just tap on the whole idea of, there's a lot of talk about endotypes in type one right now. And like, you know, it doesn't appear that this study suggested there was a differential, um, you know, response to verapamil, right? It was so. Yeah, you no, know, it's not, and and we were in a way we were lucky with that. Uh, with with the size of the study, we we see very consistent. Um, you know, we don't have non-responders pretty much. Um, so so it really seems that this is uh, this is universal, and it didn't seem to matter. The other thing was interesting. It didn't seem to matter. As I mentioned, there were big differences on, on where people started uh, in terms of with their beta cell function, and that didn't seem to affect it either. So it, I think what, what we see now with the most recent study, what matters is that the, the treatment is continued. The moment it's discontinued, that's when we see the big difference. Yeah, it's really interesting. And um, congratulations on the 
you know, following this, um, this work, I mean, I know you started, I think you sort of were, were diving into this in 2018, right? And then, and as it's really come to fruition. So it's fantastic. And I can't wait to see what other, you know, understandings and um, learnings are, are pulled from this kind of paradigm. So thank um, you very much. Thank you again for meeting with us and wishing you all the best of luck. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Have a great rest of the day. Bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye.